0: Uh, We're in verses 16 and 17, but you can see right here in Romans that, that Paul's intention is for the spread of the proclamation of this gospel word, the establishment and strengthening of the church in Rome. Last week, if you're following along with me, you can see that last week in verse 15, we ended with the words, "'So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also,' Who are in Rome. Now, think about it for a moment. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans has been speaking of his desire to preach the gospel. Uh, but he's, his desire to preach the gospel in Rome is a desire to go and preach the gospel to a people who have already received that gospel with faith. Well, how does that work? They already know the gospel, right? He's writing a letter to the church. In Rome, they've already believed the gospel. In fact, in verse 8, again, if you look back, verse 8 actually says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because, why? Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They haven't just believed, they've believed in such a way that everybody in the whole world knows about the faith in the church in Rome. And Paul's response to that faith as we come to our passage uh, last week, was so, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who have already believed so much so that everybody already knows about it. There must be something about the, the gospel that is not only for those, that heart that has not believed. There must be something about the gospel that is also for those who have believed for the nurturing of your faith. Friends, that is why this church plant exists. We are a gospel-centered church plant. I would argue there's no such thing as a non-gospel-centered church. A church that has moved on to some other thing to be centered around has lost that which has established and maintains it. We simply do not graduate from our need for the gospel to be proclaimed among us and by all of us as we opened our service. What's more, Paul justifies his gospel proclamation in in this way in our passage this morning. Yes, he's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, particularly to the church and certainly to those who have not believed. You see that everywhere Paul goes. He's looking to, to reap a harvest of faith among those who are in the church in Rome and those who have not yet heard, certainly. But he offers another justification for why he would preach the gospel. In our passage this morning, he says, I am for, I'm eager to preach for, to you the gospel to those who are in Rome, for the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he want to preach? Well, because he's not ashamed. For I'm not ashamed. He's eager to preach because he's not ashamed of the gospel, which makes me wonder why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Why be ashamed of the gospel before people who have already believed that gospel themselves? It would be like me being afraid to come to Cross Point Coast this morning, ashamed of the gospel, that all you are like, When's he going to preach the gospel? I mean, that's what we're here for, to hear the gospel. What else would he say? And Paul's saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel with you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. it's like, why would he be? He's preaching the gospel to a church in Rome that's renowned for their love of the gospel. Why should he be shy or afraid or timid or fearful? Why would he have any cause to shrink back from gospel proclamation? Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? I have two questions for us this morning. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel, and why is Paul compelled to preach specifically because he's not ashamed of the gospel? Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we reflect on this good news of Christ and his gospel, his work, his accomplishment of salvation the very power of God leveraged for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to answer in, in the depth of our hearts why we ought to be eager and why the fact that we are not ashamed ought to compel our proclamation. Lord, I pray that we would be proclamation receivers this morning, all of us, that we would hear from your word, that your spirit would work among us, that we would believe, that we would have our confidence buoyed in Christ. And having our confidence buoyed, we would not be ashamed. And not being ashamed, we would proclaim and rejoice in the knowledge of the proclamation of the gospel, even on, on church planting Sunday, that we would rejoice that the gospel is going out. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say this morning that this passage is deeply personal to me. I mean, it probably isn't too difficult to figure out why. For years now, not just as a pastor, uh, yes, as a pastor, yes, as a preacher, but also as a disciple, specifically for years now, gospel proclamation has been the very contour and, and shaping principle of my life. I mean, there's, there's no major decision that we've made in our household and among our friendships and the way that we spend our days and our hours. There's no major decision that we have made that has not been shaped by a principle of gospel proclamation. Specifically in church planting ministry, so much of that gospel proclamation has actually been among those who have already believed. Now make no mistake, we have had the opportunity and have taken hold of and rejoiced in the opportunity to make the gospel known among those who have not believed, who perhaps have not heard, understand, perhaps have walked in unbelief and resistance to the gospel. We rejoice in this. But a lot of the time, sitting around our dinner table enjoying fellowship together with has been with the saints so much of our time has been spent having coffee with someone that that we know confesses the same faith one of the things that drew me to brevard county is is as i visited here about 11 12 years ago so much of the county reminded me of these words from jesus that they are like a sheep without a shepherd now this is far from wholly the case There are many who have shepherded one another. The gospel has gone forth in this county and there is a great harvest that has grown up and yet you drive around and I think you can visit most counties in the United States. So many are like a sheep without a shepherd. So why am I eager to preach? Why am I compelled to preach the gospel? It's specifically because I am not ashamed of the gospel What cause might there be for shame in preaching the gospel among those who have already believed? Well, we'll have to consider our passage this morning. Look at it. The first words, verse 16. For, again, remember the four is in reference to, I'm eager to preach the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we need to think about oh, for a moment about the word ashamed. Probably the most common use of the word sh- ashamed uh, in, in present-day usage might be the phrase, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know, a person does something. And, and Now, certainly the person would cast shame on the other person, certainly, and that's what they're doing by saying, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But what they're really saying by the words in the sentence are, you ought to be self-ashamed. I mean, that's what, that's what ashamed means. It means you, you ought to reflect on what you're doing and you ought to receive shame in yourself. Now, I, you know, I don't often do this, most often because I can't pronounce these words, but I'm gonna give you a Greek word today, all right? I'm gonna give you the Greek word for ashamed. It's, oh, it's a long one too. Apaskunomai, all right? I don't really, I'm not worried about the first part of it. I'm worried about the last little bit the amai. I is an ending, and it, gives, uh, it tells us what sort of voice this Greek word is in. I that it ends in that, that, those four letters, O-M-A-I, tells us that it's in the middle voice in Greek. Now, when I was learning French in high school, now you think I know French. I, I know French as well as you know whatever language you took in high school. Come on. All right. But I remember this, when I was learning French in high school, I learned that there is this sort of middle voice also in French. They call it the reflexive voice. It's in a lot of languages, and in a lot of languages, the way that they put that reflexive voice is, is to put some letters at the end of the word, the way they conjugate the word. Why is it called a reflexive voice? Well, because the verb reflects back on the speaker. Let me give you an example, and I remember this from French class back in sophomore year, and and they talked about how a person would wash themselves, right? When you wash your hands, you wash yourself, so the way that the word that you would use in French for that word wash would be the reflexive voice of the verb wash. Wash. When a person washes his hands, you can say he washes himself. Well, with the word shame, in the middle voice, you could say you are shaming yourself. Or you could wash yourself. You can also shame yourself. What's that word in English? Are you tracking with me why we just did that little excursion into languages? You are ashamed. You shame yourself you are ashamed. Now, Paul says, I am not ashamed. I do not use the word shame in a reflexive way to refer to myself. I I don't own that. I don't shame myself. Now, Paul is not speaking of his concern that others would shame him. He's not saying that others will not think less of him. He's not saying that others will not mistreat him or shame him for his preaching of the gospel. Paul is saying that while others may find cause to shame him for his eagerness to preach the gospel as something that is not worthy, something that is foolish, something that is weak, Paul finds no shame in it himself. If you're ashamed of something, you're not eager to to participate in that thing. Rather, you avoid it, right? If you're ashamed of some behavior, you put distance between yourself and whatever it is that would bring shame upon you. But there's no distance for Paul between himself and his association with the gospel. He is eager to preach because he's not ashamed. He finds no self-shame in the preaching of the gospel. And yet it's been clear that the gospel has brought much shame upon him. I'm going to read a long passage from 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 29. Okay, And he's speaking about those who are, are servants in Christ, and these servants in Christ, if you're familiar with the story of 2 Corinthians, the way this letter, the reason this letter is being written is there are a group of people who are shaming Paul. They're saying, yeah, he's a preacher of this gospel thing, but he's weak. He's always getting beat up and kicked around, and, and he's sick all the time and shipwrecked all the time. He's a weak man, so his gospel must be weak as well. They're shaming him, and he says, are they servants of Christ? I am Even more, with far greater labors, more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. So he's owning it. He has been shamed during the course of his preaching the gospel. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked, night and day, adrift on the sea, on frequent journeys. Now here's what he's doing. And particularly in those beatings and in the stoning, why do you do that? Why does somebody do that? Why don't you just, you know, put them in prison or something? Well, in that beating, you are you're not just inflicting a punishment, you are putting on a public shame. The Apostle Paul during the course of his public proclamation of the gospel, has been specifically shamed, publicly so. But it's worse than that. It's not just what other people do to him. He's on these journeys and he's in dangers in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people and from the Gentiles. He's he's in danger when he's in the city. And when he's in the wilderness, he's in danger. He's in danger at sea. And from false brothers, like these guys that are there saying that I'm weak in all of these things. He's danger in toil and in hardship. He's had many sleepless nights. What's he ashamed of? What's wrong with his conscience? Why is he so sleepless? He's sleepless. He's ashamed in hunger. He is shamed with hunger and thirst. He's without food. He's been stuck in cold and exposure. Apart from other things, There is also the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. See, much of of 2 Corinthians is written as a defense of his ministry in the face of those who would shame him. And he says, oh, you haven't heard that half of it. I'm going to write an entire long paragraph. And he says at the beginning of it, he, he doesn't even like writing this paragraph. Not because he's ashamed of it, but because he is specifically not ashamed to preach the gospel. These are not problems that he needs to list in front of other people as, as reasons why he ought not preach. They're actual. They yes, they are. They breed, they've brought shame on him, but he is not ashamed. How is this so? This is what Paul is saying in his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says this, very simple. We preach Christ crucified. Friends, there's not a bigger shame than crucifixion. And the proclamation, the gospel that the Apostle Paul preaches, is one in which his hero, his savior, the God of the universe who took on flesh and proclaimed that he is God and proclaimed salvation in his name, that gospel that Paul preaches is about a Christ, a Messiah, who was publicly shamed unto death. This preaching is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Yes, Paul has been shamed. He's been abused, he's been degraded many times on account of the preaching of the gospel. But he continues to be eager to preach the gospel because he refuses to participate in this shaming. He's like, no, no, this is not shame. Now, I haven't told you why. We haven't seen that quite yet. But Paul is saying, no, I will not participate in that shame. I find no shame in the gospel, so I will not shame myself. I am not ashamed. Now let's consider Jesus for a moment, whom Paul preaches. Jesus says of himself, the Son of God in power through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring... I'm sorry, this is Paul in Romans, just a couple verses before here in our introduction in Romans. He speaks of the Son of God in power, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So here's Paul preaching Christ, the Son of God, in power. When Jesus is again telling his disciples, for the third time in Luke that he is going to suffer and die. He's warning them, I am going to be shamed. Jesus says this in Luke 18.32, For the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles. The Son of Man will be mocked and, hear this word, right, shamefully treated, spit upon. Jesus will be shamed. And he's telling this to his disciples. For the third time, he tells them specifically how he's going to be ashamed. It would appear that Jesus is not ashamed. Even as he tells his disciples how he will be shamed. In Mark, when he's first telling his disciples about his impending suffering and death, he, tells, he calls the crowd together and he tells them, Mark eight thirty four, if anyone would come after me, now he's just said, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise. He says, if you would come after me, the sufferer, the one who will be shamed, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, who would be shamed like myself for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me, who counts it a shame to be associated with the shamed one. Do you see it? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And Paul's like, mm-mm, mm-mm, I will be associated with the shamed one. I will not be ashamed to be associated with Christ because on the day when he appears in power and in judgment, he will not be ashamed of me. So yes, Jesus will be betrayed. He'll suffer and he'll die, but he'll also rise. And so, he will be shamed, and so will those who come after him. But he will also rise and be vindicated, and so too will those who come after him. You will be shamed, but you ought not be ashamed. Why does he tell the disciples to deny themselves? Well, what does it mean to deny yourself? I know you've thought about that a lot along the way. Like, I do want to follow after Christ. What does it look like to deny myself? Well, the denial of self is compared to being ashamed of me and my words. You can either deny yourself or you can be ashamed of Christ and his gospel. The disciples are called not to be ashamed of Christ and his gospel, but to deny the self-will that will rise up in self-defense. What does it mean to deny yourself? When shame comes at you, in these variety of sufferings, in a variety of these accusations, just as they came on Christ in the form of people spitting on him, the self will rise up and try to defend and deflect the shame that comes. And Jesus says, deny yourself. Tell yourself, sit down. Receive the shame. Because you do not have to be afraid. You will not be ashamed. To deny the self is to despise the shame. Paul is not ashamed of the words of Jesus. He's often shamed by the preaching of those words, but he's not ashamed of the words themselves because they're about his Christ. How does Jesus respond? We've already said it. Some of you made that connection when I said a couple words just a second ago. Hebrews 12, 2. I would encourage you, write this in the, in the margin of your Bibles there in Romans 1.16. Hebrews 12.2. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Can you hear Mark Sladorn up here? Prayer of confession over and over again. In Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we pray. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see it? When Mark prays in the name of the founder and perfecter of our faith, what are the attributes that, that God gives to in this book of Hebrews that is associated with the founder and perfecter of our faith? The attribute that is associated with Jesus is he was shamed That's the founder and perfecter of our faith. The shamed one, the crucified one, the spat upon one, the one who died a public execution. That one. And when Jesus endured the cross, he endured the shame that others were casting upon him. But how did he endure? He despised the shame. He did not rise up in defense against the shame. He counted it nothing. I see you, shame. I see you. I don't have to defend against you because you're nothing. I despise you. I give shame no quarter here. You have no home in my soul. Jesus despises the shame. He wasn't ashamed to accomplish the gospel because he was confident in the victory of his own work. Do you hear it? And so Paul joins in his Savior's theme. I am not ashamed. Paul has been shamed, but he will not participate in that way of thinking or living. No, he's going to preach because he's confident in the victory of the gospel that he proclaims. Confidence. Now I'm going to take us to another incredible passage. A lot of, a lot of references this morning. Stay with me. Second Timothy. One eight Near the beginning of his letter to, uh, his second letter to Timothy. Paul's actually in prison at this time. You'll hear it in, in the midst of these words. Therefore, do not be ashamed, he's telling Timothy, a, a proclaimer of the gospel that he's encouraging in the faith. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel for the power of God, by the power of God. Prisoners, are often imprisoned because of some shameful action. Paul writes, 2 Timothy, from a prison, but Paul is not a prisoner merely in some metaphorical sense to Jesus. He's literally a prisoner because of the proclamation of Jesus. He's shamed because of Jesus. Just a few verses later, he says, which is why I suffer as I do but I am not ashamed. I've been shamed. I'm literally in prison, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I've preached the gospel. I have been imprisoned, but the gospel is unchained. I am not ashamed because the gospel has had shame cast upon it but it is free and powerful. This is the most important cross-reference for our passage this morning because Paul is both not ashamed and convinced of his final salvation and the effectiveness of gospel proclamation. It begins in verse eight with a call not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. There's reason to no shame. The gospel and its proclamation has brought shame on Paul, but Jesus has abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light. And so in the end, there is no hint of shame. And every hint of shame will be erased. I've Kind of gone at it for a bit. I hope you've heard it. The same thing's been said a few times. The gospel brings great shame. The gospel proclamation, belief, grounding in that gospel brings great suffering and weakness, abuse, on those who are associated with Christ and his gospel, or as Jesus says, Jesus and his words. But we can be confident that this same Jesus is able to guard even those who are in prison for the sake of his name. What if you need those words? What if you face real shame. And you have the opportunity to be ashamed, to rise up in self-defense. But instead, you deny self. You say, self, sit down. This shame, I despise it. It's nothing. I know him who is able to guard me. Self, you can sit down because I know him who is able to guard me till the end. Friends, what if you need that? Need that. Like Paul did, sitting in a prison. Self, begging to rise up in self-defense and says, Christ guards me. Christ stands watch to ensure the grand purpose, the victory that is proclaimed in the gospel, that it is fully executed for the one who believes. Do not be ashamed. One more phrase. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Four. So here we got four just piling up on top of itself. I'm eager to preach to you. Why? Well, because I'm not ashamed. Why are you not ashamed? For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, there's much more to this sentence, and we'll look at it in the next few weeks. But for now, let us consider the power of God for salvation. No shame because of power, specifically the power of God for salvation. The word saved is a funny word around the church. It can mean a lot of different things. I want to offer to you this morning three things that the word salvation can mean. They're all true, but we need all three to get the truth of what is guarded for us, what the power of God is leveraged for. When we speak of salvation, the first is this. There is a manner in which a person is saved when he or she believes. There is a manner in which a person is saved. We sing the song, right? Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I was lost. I believe, and I am found. Before I believed, before I confessed faith in the gospel, I was lost. Romans 10.10 says the same thing. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see it? What does it mean to be saved? It means to confess Christ as Lord. Have you? Do you? Do you confess Christ? Today is the day to be saved. Believe. There is a second manner in which the word salvation works. There's a manner in which a person is saved when Jesus secured salvation on the cross. Not today, 2,000 years ago. And honestly, this is my favorite one to reflect upon. In Romans 3.23, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I can name you days where that has been deeply true of me. You can too. Probably about me for that matter and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, we are not justified because we believe. We don't believe and are justified. We are are justified because of the grace of Christ when he gave himself on a cross in the place of sinners. That's redemption. We are not justified because we believe We believe because we're convinced that in Christ and on his cross, we were justified. Do you see? When were you saved? When were you justified? My belief changes nothing about the ground of my salvation. My belief clings to that 2,000-year-old historical moment in which Christ received my due punishment in my place. And I'm saved. It's finished. There's a third manner in which a person will be saved on the day of judgment and into an eternal kingdom, always saved. We, we already said, right? I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That same song continues. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Grace will save me. Romans 5.9 expresses this meaning of grace. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be, shall, will, shall, future, will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And particularly the wrath of God, when it's revealed in final judgment, we will be saved because the wrath of God that will be revealed in judgment was already revealed on Christ when we were saved, and that is the confession that I make today by which I am saved. Do you see it? We've been justified by the blood of Christ, given in our place on the cross. We've put our faith in this gospel, and we will be saved when the wrath of God is revealed, because we have been justified by His blood. Romans 5:10 says it this way: "For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, that old past tense saved? much more, now we are reconciled. I am saved. Shall we be saved by his life? How long is he alive? Forever. How long will we be saved? Forever. We who have been reconciled will be saved in the age that is to come. This is one of the glorious realities and the ongoing compulsions for worship into eternity. We are saved day by day and for eternity because we're covered by the redeeming grace of Christ. And friends, there won't be a moment in 10,000 years from now in which that won't be true, that on that day, 10,000 years, all the saints gathered in the kingdom, building up houses and parks and fellowship and new songs, we will say on that day, today, yet again, redeemed by the blood of Christ today, enduring in the presence of the Holy God by fellowship with Christ. If God leverages his his power for something, does it happen? Yes. Paul is not ashamed for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is why week after week, we declare the blessing of God to bless us and keep us. This blessing is founded on the power of God to bless and keep. Again, in Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How long, how long I will be saved? by Christ who pleads for me. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? Well, because he's not ashamed. Well, why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, because it's the power of God to save. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God. The gospel is not cause for shame, but for confidence. And rejoicing, the world will shame. Those who are yet lost in sin will shame. Our self will even rise up, and we will deny our self, despise the shame. So, last question. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel to those who have already believed? Why do I, honestly, on Sunday mornings, it is the only morning of the week I wake up at 5.30 (laughs) a.m., relatively easily on most Sunday mornings. Why am I eager to get to preach to, to, you know, you who already know all this stuff? Is it just in hopes that on this day, and I hope that that's today, a friend would have joined you? And I see friends. I hope you hear the gospel. I am eager to preach the gospel to you, but also to all of you. Why? Why is Paul eager to preach? Why ought we be eager to preach the gospel to those who have already believed? Because those who have believed will not be put to shame. That's why Romans ten eleven. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now what's interesting is that's actually a quotation. Paul has already made the same quotation from an Old Testament scripture, just a chapter before in Romans 9, 33. Paul says, as it is written, behold, I am laying a stone of stumbling, a, a rock of offense, You hear the shame, the stumbling and offense that is the stone which is Christ and his gospel being laid in Zion? Stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This world sees Christ and his gospel as a stumbling weakness and an offensive foolishness. But there's no real shame. The shame is a momentary affliction. The shame is a guttural reaction of of a rebellious world and a self that rises up in the presence of the grace of God whom they've rejected, yes. But Paul is eager to preach the gospel because it's by this gospel that the believers in the church in Rome have been saved, that they are saved, and it's by this gospel that they will be saved. Friends, there is a baseline application for us today. And it's not first to believe the gospel. It's to believe that you need the gospel. That that you need the, the, the good news. To be reminded and buoyed and to put down the self that rises up in defense. You've done it this week. You've suffered, you've had some, some guttural Christ-shaped conviction in your life affronted at work and at school and out of your own temptations. You've had that happen. And this week, yourself has wanted to rise up and say, shut up. You, yourself has wanted to rise up and say, what if I just dealt with the shame a little bit by participation in the ways of this world, whether it be via my own temptation or blending in. And this morning... And morning after morning, do you believe you need the good news to be preached to your soul that you would believe in the power of God to bless you and keep you? I just offer just one note. I have to because it's where Paul goes in this whole long next section that there is a difference between the gospel and idolatry. Uh, idols make promises in the world. I mean, that's, that's what they do. They, they rise up, various temptations, various other ways of living in this world. Idols war- rise up and they make promises. And if you follow after them, you will often find that your way is uninterrupted. Not much shame in the ways of the world. In, in Romans one thirty two, at the end of our chapter, it says this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, such idolatrous wicked ways, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You will find that if you walk in the way of idolatry, you will not be shamed in this world. But friends, they cannot deliver on their promises because they have no power. You ought to be ashamed of the things that the world will bring you no shame if you walk in them. You ought to be ashamed because you ought to know there's no power there. There's no means by which I will be blessed and kept forever. In idolatry, I have no appeal before God when he appears. I know I have no hope. I have no future. I ought To be ashamed of idolatry. But there is a way of the gospel. And in this world you will be shamed. But that way, that faith stands on power. The power of God to bless you. The blower of God that will keep you to the uttermost. Heavenly Father, you know the longing of my heart for this church, my concern for them concern for my family and for us. There is so much more shame being cast upon the faith today than even a moment ago. Lord, I pray that by the proclamation of the gospel, not just in this moment on Sunday morning, But day after day, from our lips, from, from our songs, that we sing louder because our family and those around us need to hear it, that we would preach the gospel, and by the gospel we would not be ashamed when shame comes. But we would be eager to preach, specifically because there is cause to believe we will be shamed. And we would be eager to preach the power of the gospel to keep us saved forever. You are the author, you are the perfect and perfecter of this faith. Teach us to despise the shame and to cling to the glory, the infinite, all-powerful glory of Christ in him, crucified, resurrected, reigning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.